I want to get a closer look at him. How do I get in there? It's a factory, isn't it? Ask for work. Oh, I don't know anything about methane. You can shovel sh can't you? Minute. If you're looking for Kate Beckinsale, you've got the wrong underworld because this is Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minute 17, which begins with Max watching Master Blaster stomp around Underworld, and it ends with our first up-close and personal look at Underworld. Getting up-close and personal with us yet again are Richard and Chieko Dunham from Studio Ghibli Minute. Hey guys! Hello! Hey! Great to be here. So glad to be here. Welcome back. Thanks for having us. <laughs> Thank you. So fun fact about the movie Underworld, since I mentioned it in the opener. <laughs> Julia, when we were dating, fell dead asleep watching Underworld. <laughs> it bored her to unconsciousness. And you knew this was the woman for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't find long action sequences very exciting. And I usually zone out for them like that's always my cue in a movie theater that this is my bathroom break i just i'll come back just tell me how it ended and that's all i really need to know <laughs> does that include like the last half hour of this movie or <laughs> well i've mentioned about george miller's directing in the past that his chases he takes special care to make sure that you know what's going on and what vehicle is where and, and what people are doing. And that really helps me to stay engaged. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of each character, each like vehicle is its own character. And there's, yeah, each one has kind of its own story arc. It's kind yes. of like a personality and, and, you know, a goal and then, you know, kind of a, a resolution. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like a certain choreography about it. Exactly, yeah. I find modern action sequences kind of just to be a big blur for me yeah i don't know like uh yeah the transformers or something like that yeah yes <laughs> we're not big michael bay fans in this house yeah. not really <laughs> <laughs> someone yeah. that kind of resembles a big old transformer though would have to be master blaster <laughs> we start this opening shot of Max looking through the periscope and we see Master Blaster and he's kind of stomping around and Master is giving orders to people. And after being invited to take a look and tell me what you see from Auntie, Max says, I see a big guy giving a little guy a piggyback. So this is my opportunity to get into the etymology of that idea of piggyback because it's kind of a funny term, especially considering they're surrounded by pigs yeah. so i just noticed that i'll put a little bit of <laughs> music in here and i'll say welcome to the not history of english podcast a <laughs> podcast that isn't about the history of the english language this is episode 17 keep the brain dump the body in this episode we're going to see how the name for a method of moving goods can evolve over time and also offer our most sincere apologies to kevin stroud for lampooning his format <laughs> So I found a website, headsup.boyslife.org, where they talk about how piggyback was originally pronounced pickback, and it traces back to the mid-16th century. Back then, people would often carry days or weeks worth of supplies on their back while traveling. 
which was called pickbacking. Hmm. The pick part means to carry or to pitch. Back refers, of course, to the load and the place where it's carried on a person's body. In other words, pickback literally means carrying a load on your back. By the 18th century, pickaback was the most common form of the phrase, but it was confusing. The back part was obvious, but people had forgotten where picka came from. So people came up with a word that made more sense. So picka became piggy. And while it didn't make much sense, as pigs aren't really good pack animals, and if you're going to carry a pig, you wouldn't sling it over your shoulders or carry it across your back, because, I mean, have you ever tried to put a pig in one of those uh, one of those sling things called Buderborgs or something like that? Baby Bjorns? Baby Bjorns, <laughs> yeah. Have Bjorn. you ever tried to Baby Bjorn a pig? I don't think it's easy, but I digress. Piggyback stuck, and by the 20th century, we pretty much always call it piggybacking. We never use the phrase pickabacking. Okay, interesting. Huh. Mm-hmm. So is there anything else, <laughs> like the pitch as carry would that go with any other words that uh that came from that source term perhaps i imagine that when they originally started using pick back it meant like i have picked something up and i am carrying and, it on my yeah. back type of thing and pick a back just sounds like someone not wanting to pronounce their k's yeah. right next to another consonant mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you don't want weird consonants bumping up against each other just like you don't want weird vowels bumping up against each other it doesn't have a good yeah. mouth feel yeah. yeah bringing up the subject of medical terminology again from last episode mm-hmm. and medical terminology between the first half of the word and the second half of the word most of the time there's an o in there it doesn't mean anything it's just a connector piece to make things sound better. Like a fat hyphen? Yes. Like a like a hyphen that ate too much and so it turned round. Yes. <laughs> like a fat hyphen. <laughs> so now that Max has laid eyes on Master Blaster, Auntie explains it's Master Blaster. They're a unit. They even share the same name. The collector immediately contradicts Auntie. He yeah. says the little one is called Master. He's the brains. <laughs> The big one is Blaster. <laughs> He's the muscle. I I heard this line like while I was taking notes and also watching the movie for the first time. And I was like, "That's they don't have the same name. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> That's wrong. They're like, as a unit, their name is Master Blaster, but they don't have the same name. It's just that together they're called that, but separately it's Master and Blaster. Yeah. The CinemaSins video for this movie, oh, they also oh. <laughs> bring up that gripe. They start complaining about how Auntie and the Collector are at odds and they contradict each other. And it's like, I'll admit that, yes, that is an instance of clunky dialogue. And it is frustrating to have people giving you cross information. But I think it's very important here that we establish that Master and Blaster are essentially connected. The unit part is the important part. It's not the they share the same name. Like the video says something about Benifer or Brangelina. It's like, yeah, they're always together. They're a unit, you know. Mm -hmm. So this unit is a symbiotic relationship. Right. It's a symbiont circle. (laughs) I I wanted to find... Wanted to find some examples, some real world examples of symbiosis. So I found two that I think are particularly interesting and applicable to Mad Max. The first is bacteria and human beings, and really pigs, any mammal with a standard digestive tract. Mm-hmm. And that's particularly interesting because that's how they make the methane is because of the symbiotic relationship between bacteria and mammals. Mm-hmm. The second one is sea anemones and hermit crabs. Hmm. Sea anemones 
attach themselves to the back of hermit crabs and then eat the leftovers that the crabs don't eat. And they also provide transportation for the sea anemones. In return, the hermit crabs receive from the sea anemones protection from predators like octopuses. Okay. They have um they have sharp like barbs on them that protect against soft squishy things like octopuses. Okay. Is it possible for the crabs to get into the bad graces of the anemone? An 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 Is it possible for the crabs to get into the bad graces of the anemone of their frenemies? Their frenemies. Anemones. Anemones. Uh, because then the crab would be an anemone yeah. enemy, an enemy of the anemone. <laughs> oh my god! And of course, the ane- the enemy of my anemone is my friend. Yeah. My frenemy. A crab. <laughs> a crab who has no anemones on its back will actually will actually steal. <laughs> <laughs> a crab who has no enemies has really not accomplished anything in the world. I, I would actually argue that the crab that doesn't have any enemies is probably the top of the food chain because no one wants to mess with him. Either that or he's very diplomatic and he's really good at making friends. <laughs> so actually steal enemies from his enemies <laughs> steal enemies and enemies i mean with an friends enemies. like that who needs an enemies oh my gosh i'm never gonna be able to say it right again in my entire life i've never been able to say it right period well i wrote it down for a reason so that i can look at it every time i say it <laughs> A crab will steal anemones from other crabs by pinching the anemone until it releases its suction from the other crab and then holds it onto its own back, Hmm. like forcefully holds it onto its own back until it attaches itself. So it's kind of like Peter Pan trying to reattach his shadow. He just kind of holds it there and hopes it to stick. With Mm -hmm. soap. Yes. (laughs) So that relationship reminded me of Master and Blaster. Yep. And of course, like Richard brought up, you've got the Gungans and the Naboo. They form a symbiote (laughs) relationship. What happens to one affects the other. Yes. So and well, so now that I know that that's from the prequels, I'm glad I didn't get it the first time. <laughs> so in this movie, we got two communities operating kind of as Herbert crabs, each trying to steal the anemone. Right? Does that work? Mm-hmm. Oh my God. Yep. Yep. And as the collector says, you know, this unit of Master and Blaster together, they're very powerful and. The part that really bothers Auntie is the fact that they're so arrogant. So they pose a serious threat to Auntie's sovereignty because not only do they run Underworld, but it kind of looks to me as Max is watching Master Blaster stomp around that they have a very dedicated team of workers down there in Underworld that help them keep that place up and running. So if anything should happen, like this team of people would probably rebel. You know, they are loyal to the one person. They're not loyal to 
auntie, which is probably very bothersome to her. Mm. Like, there are guards down there, but there's probably not enough guards to keep everybody in check should something go awry. So speaking of symbiont circles, so what does auntie bring to the table? Like, what is, uh, like, obviously Master Blaster provides the energy source. It seems like very vital. So what does auntie provide? Judge jury execution? She sets, a, she kind of seems like she wrote the law, right? We hear yeah. this later. Mm-hmm. So she set up Thunderdome. So without, I mean, does Master Blaster, Master Blaster doesn't really realize or does he like how much value that Auntie has? And does he think that she's replaceable in the same way that she thinks he is, or at least the Blaster is? Auntie's skills and what she brings to the table, I think, are more diplomatic. She writes the laws. She deals with the people and has set up this system of trading and the rules for getting in and all of this kind of stuff. Yeah, I can see it's easier to see Auntie or Tina Turner getting various, like, diverse people to agree to something rather than Master Blaster. Yeah. 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 And I think Master Blaster's arrogance partly is towards Auntie that he thinks his contributions are more important than hers, so much so that he doesn't need her contributions. Yeah. Master Blaster assumes that since he is the one creating the energy, that he is creating something out of the wasteland, that he is superior to her. But if you take Auntie away from Bartertown, you basically leave it undefended. There are no guards that are loyal to Master. There are no trade officials that are loyal to Master. Everything above ground that protects Underworld is loyal to Auntie. And so she is the face of that settlement, and Mm -hmm. she is the muscle behind that settlement. Just because she doesn't create something tangible, security is just as important as energy in this instance. Yeah, because like Iron Bar and all those other Mohawk guys, they, they report to her. Although the, some of mm-hmm. them are like stand guard over, you know, the prisoners and the workers in the in the pig, in underworld. They have like the same uniform. Right. Because if you're going to send someone to underworld as a punishment, you need to have your own guards there to make sure that they keep shoveling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Auntie seems more of a politician. Yeah. I definitely. know that word kind of has negative connotations, but I say it in the best possible sense. She seems to be a good politician. She runs this place fairly well, and Mm. it seems to be fair for most people. But she does also seem to have been corrupted by that power. Well, she's ruthless, I would say. I don't know that she's... Mm. I mean, we don't see her, like, using the resources to provide, you know, herself with really extravagant luxury. I mean, she seems to be doing pretty well. She's not, like, uh, it's not as severe or exploitative as we see like in the in Fury Road. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We've actually brought this up mm-hmm. before that I really don't mind that Auntie lives better than everybody yeah. else. You look at our own governments all across the world and all the way down to, you know, the local level, our elected officials they live a certain lifestyle and we want them to. We want them to live in a nice house. We want to give them, you know, a governor's mansion for them to live in. We want our president to live in the White House, which is his own mansion. And we want the queen to live in a palace. These are things we want for our leaders because that's they represent us to the world. So auntie living better than everybody else, that's, that's the way it is. That's what we want from our leaders. Yeah. One mm-hmm. thing that auntie definitely has over a Morton Joe is that she is a lot more visible 
to the people of Bartertown, like when she presides over Thunderdome or when she appears in her penthouse when someone has a dispute, like people can look to Auntie and they can see how powerful she is and yeah. how healthy she is and whatnot. At Morton Joe, it's all a facade. With Auntie, it's real. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and she's, I mean, she uses the same laws that she's set up. You know, it's like... She cut a deal later. We'll say cut a deal, face the wheel, break a deal, face the wheel. She made a deal with Max. It's her. It's not like her deals are not subject to the same rules, right? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Like if <laughs> Max went through with his deal and she reneged on that, she would be subject to the wheel. Now, granted, there's a section of that wheel. We're going to talk about it when we actually get to it. But there's a section on that wheel called Auntie's Choice, and she would probably be able to just spin it to Auntie's Choice. And she'd be like, oh, well, I choose not to have any consequences (laughs) because I faced the wheel. Now I'm done. Mm -hmm. But that's a whole other thing for a whole other week. She's very uh, (laughs) Kushana-like. She is. I wanted. I reminds me of Kushana from from our movie Nausicaa. The and just Valley like of the Kushana, Wind. I love her look. Like I'm loving like the hoops on the side and just like the high rise with the boots. It's Tina Turner, baby. It's it's pretty mm-hmm. good. <laughs> I have a comment about Auntie's outfit that I keep meaning to say and keep forgetting to. Her outfit's amazing. Yeah. It's these football pad shaped framework draped in chainmail, which is gorgeous and impressive. But once it's backlit and you can see right through it, mm. kind of diminishes the statement of it a little bit. Yeah. Once light is shining through it, mm. all you see is the framework. Yeah. And it's just not very impressive anymore. Yeah. And she spends a lot of time with that outfit being backlit. Rick doesn't yeah. know what I'm talking well, about. I think the males on here do not mind <laughs> seeing Tina Turner's figure. Oh my god! Like, like I'm trying to understand Why? the argument what's, here. What's and I'm bad like... about seeing Tina Turner's right. figure? No, it's just like you have to appreciate like the the chainmail and like the backlit, like just kind of takes yeah. that away. Like, is so it? It's not yeah, as you impressive. Can see right through it. Yeah. Like, yeah. is it a metaphor for it being a facade? Like, right there. See her shoulder? Yeah. You can see right through it. Yeah. But, I mean, that's still impressive. In fact, it kind of looks like the Sydney Opera House. Oh, it, it does. does. Yeah, it looks it like does. the Sydney Opera good House. Call. It's, like, layered. <laughs> I'll give you that, that it's a cool shape. It's her, I mean, it's but, it's also kind of representative of her powers. We just talked about her powers a little bit more diaphanous or a little bit more abstract. But it's still mm-hmm. there. I mean, if you try to cut through that, it's still chain mail. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. You ain't walking up to Auntie and trying to slash her. You're you're gonna need a piercing weapon if you're gonna get through that armor check. The other thing, the thing like the those things look like earrings, but it took me like two thirds of the way yeah. through the movie to realize you... those aren't earrings. Those are like hanging <laughs> off of a, a like a, a circlet or like a yeah. head something like resting higher on her head. We were watching it and you were like, "I like your <laughs> earrings. Do you think you would wear those?" And I'm like, oh. "What earrings?" <laughs> yeah, I was like, "What earrings?" <laughs> Yeah, if those were actual earrings, her earlobes would be down to like oh my gosh, her armpits yes. by then. <laughs> Gravity would have taken over long ago. Ridiculous. I wonder if she wears those instead of earrings because aesthetically they serve the same function. Yeah. I wonder if she wears those because she didn't have pierced ears and there are no antibiotics anymore or they're at least in short supply. And so she doesn't want to risk actually piercing her ears. Although, do so you think Auntie really didn't have pierced ears before the collapse? Well, we we don't know anything about her that's true it's one of the not every adult woman has pierced ears yeah. <laughs> that's true that's true the collector has been talking about how master blaster is very powerful and 
This seems like a good opportunity for us to take a bit of a closer look at the acting duo that makes up Master Blaster, and we'll start with Master, who is played by Angelo Rosito, who was born February 18th, 1908. He died September 21st, 1991, and he is a prolific American actor and voice artist. He had dwarfism and was only 2 foot 11 inches or 89 centimeters tall and was often billed as Little Angie or Mo. Rosito first appeared in silent films opposite Lon Chaney and John Barrymore. So he was born in Omaha, Nebraska, and he was discovered by John Barrymore and made his screen debut opposite Barrymore in The Beloved Rogue in 1927. That same year, he appeared in Warner Brothers' Old San Francisco, and then later on in 1932, he appeared in the controversial film Freaks, directed by Todd Browning, and he was also in another controversial film, 1938's Child Bride. Mm. During the 1940s, he appeared in several Poverty Row movies starring Bela Lugosi. When talking about Bela Lugosi, Rosito is quoted as saying, Bella once told me that he wanted me in all of his pictures, and he gave producer Sam Katzman instructions to put me in them. Lugosi told me, Angelo, you are my greatest free advertisement. When they see you, they've got to say to themselves, there's the little guy who works with the monster. Lugosi was a sweetheart of a guy, and he loved me. Aww. And I like that. <laughs> Rosito appeared frequently in television series and miniseries, particularly best known for the police drama Beretta. This role here in Beyond Thunderdome was actually his last on-screen appearance in 1985. He could never really make enough money to live off of through his acting, so he actually ran a newspaper stand in Hollywood. When he was asked about it, he said, I never worked steady. If it wasn't for my newsstand, I would never have made a living. I'm just a ham and egg actor. Aside from his newsstand and his acting career, he was one of the founding members of the Little People of America, which was founded properly by actor Billy Barty, who was Rosito's co-star in the 1932 movie Freaks. LPA offers information on employment, education, disability rights, adoption, medical issues, clothing, adaptive products, etc., etc., and the many stages of parenting a short-statured child from birth to adult. Information is provided through a national newsletter, the LPA Today, and numerous seminars and workshops which occur locally at chapter events, regionally at district meetings, and nationally at their yearly national conference. LPA also provides opportunities for social interaction as well as participation in athletic events through their sister organization, the Dwarf Athletic Association of America. Little People of America is primarily all-volunteer organization for persons and families involved with the condition of dwarfism. They are focused on peer and parent support, medical resources and referrals, scholarships, and programs that benefit the dwarfism community while promoting education, community outreach, personal and family strength, and life achievements. You can visit lpaonline.org for more information. Rosito eventually died in 1991 from complications during surgery. He was 83 years old. Oh, wow. Yeah. 83. Yeah, so I was looking at some of his stuff as well, Mr. Uh, Angelo Rosito. He worked as a stunt double for Shirley Temple. No kidding. Yeah. Oh wow. my gosh. Yeah, he was. Uh, He's also. I mean, he did, he was in a bunch of stuff, as you, as you as you said. I mean, if you look on his IMDb page, it's you know it goes back to 1927. And some of the couple of things that that sprang out to me were uh, HR Puffin stuff. <laughs> just oh, it's like Tusk. I just little I just <laughs> <laughs> something I don't want to think about, yeah. but it just jumped out of. And he was billed. 
He was a voice actor in uh, the Saul Zaints Lord of the Rings, but not exactly sure what his role is in IMDb. He's just listed as character actor is the mm-hmm. role. Yeah, he, Rosito definitely played his fair share of costumed yeah. roles. And costumed, I mean like put into a puppet, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> Being of that stature, I imagine that would be something that a producer would do fairly easily. Can I take a, like a, a short detour, like a, go off on a little bit of a tangent? He's... Appears in Freaks and <laughs> would, uh, was a film by director Todd Browning. And to bring it back to Bella Lugosi, Todd Browning directed Bella Lug- the version of Dracula uh, with Bella Lugosi. Mm. Todd Browning went back. He also his career as a director also went back to the silent era, back to the the Nickelodeon days uh, when you would uh, you know watch like one reelers on like the little arcade machines. And he did uh, a bunch of just wild stuff in the 20s. One uh, that jumps out is called, I think, The Unknown with Lon Chaney as a armless knife thrower hmm. uh, starring opposite Joan Crawford. It's a pretty wild premise. It's available on the Internet Archive if you want to take a look at it. I don't think I've I haven't managed to sit through the whole thing yet. <laughs> That was in 1927, but uh, uh, Angelo missed his chance to star in that one. But so Todd Browning had this long career, and then he he directed Dracula, which was, as we all know, a phenomenal success, just epoch-making movie. Mm-hmm. And so after he directed Dracula, he could basically do anything he wanted. And what did he want to do? What was his passion project? It was this weird movie, Freaks, about uh, about people, you know, differently abled people in the in the circus. And he made this movie, and it was such a, a scandal at the time that after he made that movie, that was basically the end of his career. He couldn't oh. even get arrested in Hollywood. <laughs> yeah, I've never sat down and watched the movie in its whole, but I've seen enough of it that the whole idea, it's very intriguing more than anything the story of gold digging and taking advantage of people and then having a community turn on the gold digger and everything like that i mean it's billed as a drama horror and it's just shy of feature length it's about an hour and four minutes yeah i watched it in high school but there are some standout performances for sure i mean it's wild it's yeah (laughs) (laughs) it's it's something i mean it's uh you know it's like going to a freak show i mean it's (laughs) these are real people i mean it it kind of sits Mm -hmm. you i mean it makes you think it's like you know you kind of wonder is this exploitative but on the other hand it's like you realize that these people exist right and you're looking at them and 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 it's weird because it gives you like a you know a, a feeling of sympathy for them throughout and then but the ending of the movie is they turn, you know, uh, they turn on this uh, this person who's betrayed them and they're presented, you know, it's like they turn into monsters. It's weird. It's a wild movie. <laughs> it's weird because, like you said, the entire movie, the people that are normal, and I realize it's probably a loaded phrase, but the people that are of typical stature yeah. and shape, like they, throughout the entire movie, are the monstrous ones and the horrible people. And the performers in the freak shows portion of the show are seen as extremely sympathetic. But then there's that twist at the end that just throws everything on its ear and no one really comes out looking yeah. good at the end of that movie. So it's very... Different. You can see why it's it definitely ended his 1932. Career, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So 
The second half of Master Blaster is played by Paul Larson. Paul Larson is a tricky person to get information about because a lot of the information I found was very conflicting. There are some people that say that Paul Larson was just a plumber who was six foot eight inches or 2.07 meters, and he was hired because of his height. There are some people that say that Paul Larson had Down syndrome. There are some that say he doesn't because Paul Larson played Blaster but the person who played Blaster Unmasked was played in an uncredited role by a man named Stephen Hayes. I was wondering about that, like because the the staging of that unmasking, I realized it's not this this minute, but it almost I wondered at the time as we were watching, I was like, oh, is that the different head on? Yeah, it feels body? like a different yeah. person. You know, they there are some people that say that Beyond Thunderdome was Larson's only role, but if you go on IMDb, it lists Altered States, the kidnapping of the president in 1980, and The Intruder Within from 1981. So it's like if Paul Larson only worked on Thunderdome, there must be another Paul Larson who worked on those other movies. Yeah, but it says like. It also has like an alternate uh, spelling, so maybe that's part of the confusion. Yeah. Plus, when you search the name on Google, it lifts him as a screenwriter instead of an actor that apparently worked on two Fireman Sam movies, Ultimate Heroes in 2014, and Alien Alert the Movie in 2016. So I'm not quite sure what to believe when it comes to Paul Larson and Blaster and all that. Yeah. <laughs> it's a mystery. It really is. As we are watching Master Blaster stomp around, one of their assistants come up behind them and they pull on this little tail that Master has hanging from the backpack he sits in and Master Blaster turns around. The assistant points at the periscope. So Blaster reaches his hand into a bucket of poop, I can assume, and he just underhands this lump of excrement at the periscope and he does it underhanded and it makes me wonder if he ever like played softball or something <laughs> to throw it that accurately <laughs> i can picture him practicing so that when master wanted this done he could do it on the first try <laughs> and it's crazy because he doesn't even like reel back or anything like that it's just a grab scoop and toss yeah he just makes it look really easy yeah and effortless the assistant, the, the one that comes up and, and like pulls on the horsetail, it's like, I think it's a woman. I get the impression it's a woman, but she's like wearing like a a work jumpsuit and a, a what looks like a nun's cowl. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I didn't notice yeah. the cowl. <laughs> yeah, you can kind of see her, you know, twirling some dials or something in the background like a second 11 like before she comes around and then, yeah and then she comes up she does look like she's wearing a nun's cowl yeah but this is one of those people that i was talking about earlier those folks that are fiercely loyal to master yeah. and not necessarily loyal to auntie especially because they alert master to the fact that auntie's watching them so that blaster can throw poop yeah and what the other guy the other one of the other assistants kind of on the platform that we see at the very like the very beginning of the minute he's got like a red visor or like a trucker hat he kind of reminds me for some reason he's got like a harry dean stanton vibe for me <laughs> maybe it's the hat and the long yeah. coat i've caught sight of the nun's cowl and it definitely looks like a nun's cowl mm. i can imagine it's pretty hot down there yeah so i'm wondering if it's a sweatband type setup Hmm. Something to keep her hair and the sweat out of her face. Yeah, probably. I mean, I would. I'd do the same. Yeah, <laughs> it's the same reason that guy's wearing 
his hat. It's like the red yes. visor. Yeah. You know what that guard reminds me of? The guy with the his, the shoulder pads and uh, the kind of spear. He reminds me of the the guards in Tron. Hmm. Who have like the the same kind of shoulder pads and they've got like the light sticks. Yeah. You know, I haven't thought about that movie in a long time, but now that you bring it up, I can kind of see it. So what are those pads that everybody has? Are those uh, hockey or football? What kind of padding is that? I want to say American football. It occurs to me, why would American football pads be in Australia. so plentiful in Australia? Yeah. Because yeah. they're not, they're a football excuse padding, does it not? Yeah. Right. And I mean, do they play hockey in Australia? I doubt it. <laughs> I'm sure somebody does. It's not like nobody plays hockey. Yeah. Field hockey. Yeah. Desert <laughs> hockey. Or lacrosse yeah. or something. Oh, yeah, lacrosse. Australian listeners, what kind of pads are these, do you think? From an Australian perspective, let us know on Twitter or on the listener group, you know, at us about this, because we're, we're genuinely curious. Yeah, for two movies, we've been calling them football pads, and it just now occurred to me that they don't play American football. Yeah. They do not throw the old pigskin around, and especially not in this instance. <laughs> okay, back to the pigs. I probably should have mentioned this last episode, but I'm thinking about it now. There's pigs all through the movie. <laughs> You're a good girl. <laughs> is, is pork and bacon plentiful in Bartertown then? Ooh. Once a pig gets injured or grows old or gets sick. Is it like a specialty? Of something that wouldn't make the meat bad. So is pork and bacon and whatnot plentiful? I think that... I'm going to say yeah, no. Judging really? by the next minute yeah. and the branding that we see on somebody's chest. Oh, yeah. 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 True. We can reconsider that on Friday. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. In the meantime, I mentioned Blaster throwing the poop at the periscope. And Max, who has had his face up against the periscope, apparently he gets suckered into the reality of looking through that scope because as the poop hits the lens, Max pulls back suddenly from the periscope as if he was having that poop flung at him personally. And so this is specifically where we hear Auntie say that Master Blaster are arrogant. And then the collector goes on to say, we want to keep the brain, dump the body. And Max is starting to understand the situation. Mm -hmm. So he acknowledges Blaster's side and then tries to feel out just how lethal this guy can be and the collector is really no help he makes a quip about how blaster has bad breath and how that alone can take out someone and max says you know i need to get a closer look i like how as soon as max flinches auntie says he's arrogant like she knows that <laughs> blaster probably did that and is like <sighs> yeah yeah that's a good point <laughs> so she has to clean she has to have somebody clean that oh that periscope man, yeah. all the time so does it work? Does this the way that periscopes work? I know we, we had our kind of complaint session about periscopes uh, on Monday, but I noticed the one thing that struck me is like when Auntie or Max look through the periscope, it's shining a light on their face. Is oh, that yeah. how we would expect periscope to work? And then when the, when the when the lens on the other end gets occluded by the waste thrown at it, it doesn't seem to affect the light shining onto Max's face. I'm thinking specifically of another time in movies that I've seen periscopes, and that's from The Hunt for Red October. And there was not a light yeah. shining on the viewer's face. I like the effect, you know, from a storytelling 
point of view. Mm. You know, it, it, Anytime you can light up Mel Gibson's eyes, <laughs> I mean, go for it. Go. <laughs> yeah. I feel like this instance here where the collector is explaining that they want to get rid of Blaster and Auntie is threatened by their arrogance. This is where we really get to see Auntie shifting from the noble leader of Barter Town to someone who is a bit more paranoid. She knows that her grasp on Barter Town is not really physical. It's more political and emotional. And since there's nothing physical that's produced through her influence, there might be people that see her as superfluous. I like the way that she walks away and turns her back as the collector kind of gets into the gritty details or the dirty reality of what they're asking Max to do. Mm -hmm. It's like she has her people handle the dirty stuff, just like she has, you know, underworld that Mm -hmm. she wants to be more in her control. doing the dirty work she doesn't want to get her hands dirty necessarily max on the other hand is perfectly willing to get his hands dirty he just wants to know what he's reaching into and so he expresses that he wants to get a closer look at blaster possibly try and suss out some sort of exploitable weakness or something that he can take advantage of in this fair fight that they've mentioned before wink wink and the collector says oh you want to get down there well it's a factory just ask for work and max doesn't know a thing about methane auntie very cleverly turns and explains that he does not have to worry about a knowledge of methane because as long as he can work a shovel he can work an underworld yeah i don't think i really buy this little interaction Mm. i think max is smart enough to know what they mean when they say ask for work yeah (laughs) they're not talking about go be an engineer (laughs) they're talking about manual labor he knows that he is smarter maybe he was hoping maybe maybe I think that the script set up this line for Auntie Entity. Oh, for sure. She's had her back turned to Max and the Collector having this nitty gritty, dirty conversation, and she gets to turn back around and have this clever line. Yeah. This is the kind of line that if Auntie Entity was played by David Caruso, she would put on a (laughs) pair of sunglasses and then deliver this line. (laughs) Yes. You are absolutely right. Because what happens is she delivers this line and then we smash cut to Underworld. We get this little poop sludge conveyor going and we start tracking over pigs and whatnot. But you could just as easily swap out that transition with the opening to CSI Miami. In fact, I might (laughs) just do that and upload it to the listener page for kicks and giggles. This idea is only supported by the magnificent saxophone that we get when Mm. we go down to Underworld. So before we go, I I do want to say I love the way that Max responds. I don't know anything about methane before the collector finishes saying his sentence. It's like <laughs> it's just, it's a factory. Ask for I don't know anything about methane. <laughs> I, I like that. Uh, it's uh, I don't think you you see that too much. It's something like characters talking over each other. Something he was like Howard Hawks used to do that. Like if you watch the thing from another world, it's uh, it, you get kind of like I think it, it's one of the things that kind of adds to the realism or like the tension mm-hmm. is that everybody's talking over each other. But I think it was effective uh, in this scene. Mm-hmm. As we go down into Underworld, though, we get the return of the clanging soundtrack. But it's not just the clanging soundtrack that we heard up in Bartertown. There's an extra level added into it, and that is the saxophone that Julia 
just mentioned. And I've got to say, for such a gloomy place, the soundtrack for Underworld is pretty lively. Yeah. It makes this feel like an 80s workplace sitcom. It does. <laughs> it does. <laughs> oh my God. Especially once we get into Friday's Minute where you actually see people moving around and working. <laughs> it's like you're looking at an everyday, this is how the office runs. There's certainly a lot of shoulder pads. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Just not a lot of blazers, unless you count the furnaces. <laughs> it's like an episode of Moonlighting. Or yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so this is this is from Maurice Jarre. Is that right? Mm -hmm. did, this, did the soundtrack? The composer who did Lawrence of Arabia. Oh, spent no expense on that regard. You get yeah. WB money, you get WB quality. <laughs> but there will be plenty of time to talk about Underworld on Friday's minute. So we are going to put a pin in the movie for now. Richard and Chieko, thank you for joining us. We hope you'll join us once again for Friday, and uh, same goes for all of our listeners. We'll see y'all then. The Mad Max Minute Podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy, is presented by Kennedy Miller Mitchell Productions, and distributed by Warner Brothers. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. And our outro music is We Don't Need Another Hero by MilitiaVox of MilitiaVox.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute, like us on Facebook by searching for Mad Max Minute, and join our Facebook listener group, Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com where you can check out our Tee Public storefront by clicking the store link Join our Patreon by clicking the support link or make a one-time donation by clicking the donate link. Thank you for joining us for Minute 17 of Beyond Thunderdome. See you on Friday. Everybody say